This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. State lawmakers ended the legislative session last week by slashing the marketing budget of the Hawaii Tourism Authority and giving the counties the power to hike the hotel room tax. Senator Glenn Wakai, who is the head of the Senate Tourism Committee, spoke with us this morning to explain why. They have to really focus on return on investment. If we're going to use taxpayer dollars in, the taxpayers deserve to see something out. And we've seen diminishing returns over the years, and certainly over the past year, the returns have been abysmal. And I've been kind of coaching John DeFries and the HTA crew there that they really need to cut back on some of their expenditures on the marketing side. We're not talking about the safety and the natural resources and the cultural stuff, but on the marketing side, they really need to pull back on their spending. And that's why... You saw the cuts last week of $19 million to their budget. We are seeing the domestic visitors come in, Mm -hmm. still not really numbers that many would like from Asia, from Japan, China, Korea. Correct. But they still keep spending money on Japan and Korea. I'll just give you a couple of quick statistics. February of last year, the tourism authorities for the Japan market was spending about $4.55 per Japanese arrival in February of 2020. February of this year, they spent $253 per Japanese visitor. For the Korean market, February of last year, $3.88 per visitor. February of this year, $41 per visitor. I mean, these are X times many more dollars being spent per particularly Asian visitors. And we all know that the Asian market is dead and will stay dead until after the Olympics. So there's absolutely no reason to be spending any money on the Asian markets, but HTA continues to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars a month on Japan and Korea. Do you feel that they just didn't, you know, cut those marketing contracts fast enough? I feel that HTA lets the contractors drive the show. I think there's two problems there. One is a clear strategy on what is HTA's expectations and what are they chasing? And then two, they need to hold the contractors accountable. If you're not delivering Japanese and Korean tourists, then maybe you should be seeing your contracts cut or maybe the entire contract should be uh, just gotten rid of. So you think it was a case of what, the tail wagging the dog? Absolutely. And from my perspective, I'm beholden to the taxpayers. I need to make sure that every dollar that I give of your money is paying some kind of dividend. And in this case, there's no way I could confidently say it's doing that. A dollar in is just a dollar wasted. And what about the management of the numbers, you know, this problem of over-tourism that many places across the globe have been uh, dealing with? Well, I don't see that we should be fixated on a number. Somehow in Hawaii, we're fixated on 10 million visitors, and that that is too much. I'm of the mindset that, you know, we had 12, 15 million visitors, but we kept them in all the right spots, then we're okay. And if Ala Moana or Kualoa Ranch saw a big bump in customers, I don't think any of them would be... A griping. But when all of a sudden tourists show up in Lani Kai and in Makakilo and Mililani or places where they should be, that's when we have a problem. And what did we learn from COVID over the past year? We had one whole year to figure out how exactly are we going to reimage and reinvent tourism. And we did absolutely nothing. We're back to where we were a year ago, where the buffet line is open and come one, come all. Hawaii's on sale. We're inviting cheap tourists cheaper tourists today than we invited in 2019. We've really not taken the opportunity to better manage uh, tourism in the years ahead. But how do we manage the tourism to get the higher end visitor into Hawaii? I mean, is that really reasonable to expect? I think it's totally reasonable. I mean, you look at the, the diminishing views of locals have of tourists. And to me, it's not a coincidence that that came with short-term vacation rentals. Fifteen years ago, we had bed and breakfasts, but nobody was talking about tourists living in our neighborhoods, but now they're all amongst us. If I was in charge of HT over the past year, I would have been really pressing on that particular issue to put guardrails around short-term vacation rentals and really reduce their numbers and reduce where they are in our community. That probably would have been the biggest is probably the biggest choke point and pain point for tourism in Hawaii is having tourists in people's neighborhoods. You could better manage tourism by just working with the city to better regulate them. We've been talking about a statewide park registration system, which would help keep X number of people at Diamond Head, maybe uh, reduce the number of people hiking to Makapu'u. 
or elsewhere. It, to me, it makes sense that we have a, a clear ability for us to regulate how many people are there and charge for that uh, access. But what did we do? Absolutely nothing. We continue to talk about what we should be doing to manage the numbers of folks at our various tourist attractions, but we've done nothing. You look at the safe travels, when we, we stood that up in three months to try and get some kind of contact tracing for people. Why is it taking one year to resolve nothing on an idea of a statewide park management registration system? So those are two examples where it's not rocket science. We can get to a better management of tourism. It's just a matter of leadership, courage, and desire to get us to a better place. In all fairness, though, I mean, we did see the state parks do something on the neighbor islands. You know, we did see the city uh, finally move on Hanama Bay. I mean, there's some been some hiccups there. Uh, I think the National Park Service had their reservation system in place for Haleakala, I think. So there has been some movement, maybe not maybe not fast enough to people's liking, you know, that there should be more of this, and we should have done this yesterday. Yep. To me, it's frustrating that the solutions are obvious. The pieces of the solution are there, but nobody's picking up all of the pieces and putting them together. We're just kind of waiting, and then tourism is on the rebound, and we're just kind of going back with the flow. No one, no one is taking a leadership role in just reinventing, reimagining tourism. Are we moving too slow in uh, uh, getting the feedback and the action plan from the different counties? I know Oahu is just, you know, I think launching this week, right, where, where people can talk about what we should be doing. Uh, do you think we just move too slow on those things? I think we have just, just too much complacency in government. I mean, th- these destination management plans that HTA has embarked on since late last year are all gurgling up the same issues that were studied back when I saw DBIT study in 2005, right, talking about more respectful tourists, infusing culture in the experience, uh, managing our trails and going after higher spending visitors. These are all things today that we talked about 15 years ago. At a certain point, the state government has to stop talking about problems and start solving them. I've seen Kauai's and Big Island's destination management plan. There's nothing astonishingly different in those plans than what we talked about 15 years ago. So at a certain point, the state has to pull the trigger and start getting stuff done. There has been talk, too, about collecting data uh, from people's phones, right, where 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 the visitors are going. You know, there's, there's talk about the geofencing. Do you know what's come out of that? Don't know the particulars on that particular project. I like the idea, though, of... Uh, uh, monitoring what tourists are are doing, and I also want to look at that as an ability for HTA or some entity to monetize that as well, right? It's not just a state function of us contact tracing you and, and watching you go around town, but why not have stores in Ala Moana or restaurants advertise on there, and all of a sudden we, we start paying for it, and it potentially could be at least uh, cost-effective or a revenue stream for, for the state. So I'm all for using technology to help us on a policy level do what we need to do for public health and safety, but why not look at things from a perspective of this could be a potential moneymaker for, for the state uh, as well. Governor David Ige has expressed some concern about you know the revamping of, of HTA and giving the counties, I think, the ability to raise the hotel taxes on each island. Do lawmakers have a plan if uh, he vetoes those measures? There's only going to be two options. One, we can override the veto, and from the vote of last week, we have the numbers to, to do that. For whatever reason, the lawmakers don't decide to veto override, then it'll be status quo, same old, same old. We're going to just see an influx of frugal tourists here, and there's going to be more and more local people who are going to be griping about the, the imbalance in our community. That was Senator Glenn Wakai, head of the Tourism Committee, talking about the justification for revamping the Hawaii Tourism Authority and giving the counties the power to raise hotel room tax. Homeschooling is on the rise in Hawaii with more than 6,400 students withdrawing from the public school uh, system this year. 
The upward trend could reverse as the pandemic dies down. HBR's Kuubehi joins us today with a look at how homeschooling could also have long-term impacts on public education statewide. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. The latest data uh, for this past quarter, the third quarter, from the Department of Education uh, shows that 560 or so students had withdrawn in those three months and um, withdrawn with the intent to homeschool. So there are others withdrawing to go to private school or perhaps moving away from Hawaii or to another country, and that data is also collected by DOE. Uh, but this number in homeschooling or this rise in homeschooling we've been seeing consistently throughout the pandemic uh, has really, from those who have taken that on, uh, been an impact on uh, or an opportunity for folks to move away from full-time remote learning. And so, you know, some of the benefits we hear from folks and this experience has been uh, varied throughout the state. We've spoken uh, to a former public school teacher on Kauai, Christina Zimmerman, who founded Homeschool Now Hawaii, a nonprofit that supports homeschooled uh, kids uh, over on the North Shore. So Haena, Hanalei, Hanalei to Haena. And we know with uh, the landslide earlier this year, plus COVID and then the 2018 flooding, students in this area of really public school students have really struggled uh, to find that sort of support. And so Zimmerman actually went ahead and started uh, the Makana Learning Center, the nonprofit did, uh, to provide free tutoring to kids along that, along that coast who may be taking on homeschooling during the pandemic. Uh, so uh, many of the folks we've spoken to uh, have expressed this idea that they're uncertain about whether or not the homeschooling trend will continue to rise. Um, folks are saying, you know, this could just be something that dies back down afterwards and once schools are completely safe to, uh, to reopen uh, for in-person uh, instruction, that kids will be flooding back to those classrooms. Well, I was dismayed, you know, when I saw, I think, a, a story about how a lot of kids were logging in remotely, you know, in regular school, but then going off and uh, doing something else, you know, jumping in the shower or playing video games and not really paying attention. But there were also a number of kids who just didn't log in. Right. But the challenges of remote learning uh, really helped, I think, exacerbate uh, the negative impacts of, of having to uh, learn under the pandemic or school the way things are going. Uh, we spoke to another sort of longtime homeschooling mom over in Haiku on Maui, Melissa Johnson, who believes that it is a temporary spike uh, in homeschooling, but that the silver lining has been that a lot of parents are paying more attention to what's being taught in the schools and how their children are uh, developing. And so I uh, got a chance to speak to one mother uh, over in Kilkaha, Aina Aloha Iowane, who decided she's a homeschool teacher or was a homeschool teacher and decided to pull her kids, three kids out, ages seven, five, and uh, two, not yet quite in the system, um, but uh, decided to homeschool them and designs curriculum uh, for her kids and also for other parents in both Hawaiian and, and English. And she began to see the benefits that uh, homeschooling can bring to, to the family unit. Here's Ina. Homeschooling your own child with a program that you as a parent are involved in, you can get to build relationships with your own keiki. When I was in the classroom, I just, I, I assumed the, the kumu's handling everything. You know, I check her homework. You know, like, like the parents, did you do your homework? Yeah, okay, yay. <laughs> right, that's all we do, check and sign the alimanaka. But when I'm at home, I get to see, you know, firsthand how she's learning and how she's progressing. And, and at that same time, we're building relationships. She's talking about her seven-year-old uh, daughter, Wahine, and just that intimacy that you get with your kids at home has been something uh, that some parents have said uh, is an advantage. Others are, are who work full-time have struggled with trying to homeschool uh, their kids, and so opportunities like the Makana Learning Center over in Haena and support systems. I remember we were talking about the pandemic pods and co-ops. Uh, this ecosystem of homeschooling is really growing uh, because of this demand. And so whether or not that's going to continue will be interesting uh, to see. But a lot of more interested parents uh, or parents interested in their child's education is really what we're seeing. Yeah, and we've heard stories of uh, parents that have formed a hui 
you know, a kind of a co-op, you know, somebody maybe has a forte in some area and, and they'll oversee or they're available certain days of the week and they'll kind of just trade off. So that I thought was really uh, interesting to see. And maybe something that will, will last throughout, you know, beyond the pandemic, even if kids go back to school. And these are some of the conversation for uh, conversation folks are having around this idea of homeschooling. Now, one little caveat is that, uh, you know, the Department of Education is dependent on per-pupil funding. So uh, the removal or withdrawal of this amount of students could mean a uh, uh, decreased budget uh, for public schools. So we'll see what happens there. All right. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Kuvehi. Mahalo. We have been talking with HPR's Kuvehi Rishi about parents who are choosing homeschooling for their children. You can find her stories online at hawaiipublicradio.org. <laughs> Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, featuring island-style lunch at the open-air Homa Cafe and evening bar service on Fridays and Saturdays. Admission tickets at honolulumuseum.org. For more than half a century, so-called qualified immunity has shielded police officers from lawsuits. To the extent that qualified immunity fosters a sense of, it's really not my problem. Let's take a look at it. How reforming qualified immunity could transform policing in America. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. Support for HPR comes from the Kahala Hotel and Resort on Oahu, celebrating nearly six decades of hospitality, committed to the community with its Kahala Initiative for Sustainability, Culture, and the Arts. Kahalaresort.com. The state health department has pulled back its order for additional vaccines for the first time. That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beats reporter Eleni Avendano on the line today. Good morning. Aloha. How are you? Good. So uh, this is really interesting that they have actually reduced their order. Yeah. So you might have seen some reports from the continent that sound similar, uh, that the vaccine COVID vaccine demand is starting to slow down across the U.S. and our supply of shots is actually beginning to outpace appointment signups. Uh, so we heard from the Hawaii Department of Health yesterday that the same thing is beginning to happen here in Hawaii, uh, so much so that we cut back on our dosage order from the federal government. Uh, we were offered for this week 78,500 doses, and we took about 63,900 of those. Yeah, I know the health department has said usually they find out on Thursdays, you know, what the supply is going to look like for the following week. Uh, but I did see a, a, a notice go out, I think, by uh, CBS Longs on the, um, that uh, I think all the clinics here are going to be now allowing walk-ins so you don't have to just make appointments. Yeah, and officials hope that offering walk-in appointments will uh, make appointments more accessible and sort of address this issue. Um, health department officials think that, you know, there could be several reasons as to why this is happening. Um, Civil B and our news partner, Hawaii News Now, conducted a poll recently, and we found about 12% of those surveyed said they didn't plan to take the vaccine at all. So, you know, hesitancy could be playing a role in this, but health officials think that we've just you know, been able to reach those who are very eager to get the vaccine. Um, they say we have a job at reaching the elderly, and the focus is uh, trying to reach, you know, the younger um, population. And um, for any folks out there who were, you know, waiting for the right time or just weren't in a rush, they're encouraging those um, people to sign up now um, because we have more than enough available. And the walk-in appointments will make things much more convenient. Yeah, I believe uh, Big Island started uh, offering uh, walk-ins as well. And I was surprised to learn, I didn't realize that they had a drive-through uh, shot clinic as well. The only one in the state. 
Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, Hawaii has made a lot of progress in its vaccine campaign um, after a slow start. And we're, we saw a milestone yesterday, actually. I found out that about 63% of our vaccine-eligible population, that's people who are, you know, at least 16 years old, they've been fully vaccinated as of Tuesday. Um, you know, that's still possibly kind of a, a far bit away from what we would need for herd immunity. Um, but it, Hawaii has, you know, when you look at national re- rankings, Hawaii is making um, considerable progress in vaccinating its population. Um, but in terms of the drop of demand, you know, we saw yesterday, too, that our President Joe Biden, um, you know, noticed this phenomenon, and he's calling on states to make it easier for people to get shots. And he set a goal of getting 70% of all American adults um, getting at least one dose of a COVID shot by the 4th of July. Well, our uh, rate of vaccinating people, it's higher than the national rate, right? Right. Yeah, we are vaccinating people higher than national rate, correct? That's according to Kaiser Health News. They did an analysis of this. And so the pace at which is administering doses is about 798 people per 100,000. Um, and that's on the higher end of the spectrum. We compare it to states like Rhode Island. Uh, on the lower end might be Mississippi, which is vaccinating 136 people per 100,000 um, folks. Well, we'll see um, uh, what the turnout is like over the next couple of months. I know everybody's shooting for what uh, July 4th is a kind of a celebration, right, where we can get a lot of people uh, vaccinated. But uh, thanks, Seleni. Thank you so much. That was uh, reporter Eleni uh, Avendano with today's Reality Check. To read her stories on this issue, visit civilbeat.org. Today, the Biden administration rolled out a new website dedicated to artificial intelligence, AI.gov. It's meant to be the place where we can stay up to date on the federal government's work on developing and using artificial intelligence. This news comes as the East-West Center here uh, in Hawaii prepares for a virtual discussion on the subject tomorrow. Dr. Peter Hershock is the director of the center's Asian Studies Development Program. He has written a book on artificial intelligence. He spoke with the conversations Russell Subiano about the benefits and pitfalls of AI in our lives and how the technology will impact us in the future. Many people have this idea of artificial intelligence that comes from movies, you know, like Terminator or The Matrix. But it seems to me that AI in practical everyday situations seems to be more nuanced, especially when it comes to opportunity and risk. What are some of the ways that AI is shaping our lives that the average person wouldn't realize? Well, I don't know that the average person doesn't realize it, but it's, it's totally ubiquitous. It's everywhere around us. Yeah. So when you go online and you do a Google search or you're using a search engine of your choice, I mean, those are algorithmically driven. So there's an artificial intelligence behind that system that's making recommendations to you depending on your search. And the way in which that's done is they're comparing your search history, you as an individual, your search history, with other people who've done similar type of searches. And so start throwing information at you, possibilities for recommendations that people like you have enjoyed or they've mm-hmm. hit or they followed through. And it's adaptive. So the system gets better and better at making recommendations for us. So that's just a, a totally ubiquitous thing. It's everywhere yeah. that we go. Same thing with news feeds from Facebook, news feeds from uh, or the Instagram accounts that you're a part of. All those are algorithmically mediated. So you're engaging with artificial intelligence every day in those media. My wife has told me plenty of times that she's uh, either searched for something or read about something on her phone. And then 10 minutes later, it shows up as an ad in her Facebook feed. And right. so it, it seems to me that this this is kind of the thing that you're talking about where there's, there's a, I don't know what it is, technologies or software out there that's tracking uh, things you're looking at and trying to capitalize on. Yeah, I mean, there's a really, it's a dense and long book, but it's a book by um, Soshana Zubov called Surveillance Capitalism. Mm -hmm. 
And I think we really need to start really rethinking what the economy is doing and how commerce is working nowadays, because it really is all about uh, gaining more information about us so that these artificial systems are able to predict and then produce the kind of behaviors that the people who run the platforms and are running the businesses want them to do. So it's, it's extraordinarily powerful, mm -hmm. uh, but we need to be concerned about that because the epistemic power, the power to know what we want, what we fear, what we can be induced to purchase is also a power to change how we become the people that we are. It, it sounds like the, the use of the information that's gathered is more than commercial, more than just trying to figure out what to sell us. There may be some other motives behind the information capture. Should we, or, or what could we do to protect ourselves if in fact that, that may be the case? You know, I think it depends on which part of the protection we're talking about. Uh, something that I like to focus on is the way in which artificial intelligence and these systems have been used to shape voting behaviors. So okay. if you look at the 2016 and 20, 2020 elections, 30% uh, of the uh, posts from either campaign side, Democratic side or the Republican side in the U.S., they were actually generated by conversational robots, not by human beings. In order to influence people's behavior, what they're drawing on is detailed things like, uh, do you have health insurance or not? Or do you have prescriptions for somebody who's in palliative care for cancer? That makes you vulnerable to certain kinds of information from certain parties, and the algorithms are putting the picture together to decide, okay, how do we shape this person's voting behavior? So I think that really calls into question something as basic as our, our governmental uh, principle of free and fair elections, and it causes us as, as citizens to say, well, maybe we need a, a new kind of fourth estate. So the fourth estate used to be the media mm -hmm. against the political powers. Uh, but now maybe we need a, a new kind of fourth estate where we use these same technologies in order to be able to get the kind of connectivity that we need to be, have active resistance to the commercial or state uses of our data, which are really traces of our own intelligence. Right. To take our intelligence and then to use that to shape our behavior I think we really need to be wary of that. Yeah, that is really scary to think that someone would, would be able to use that information to influence us. When the media has talked about Russian collusion during the, the election, is that really guys sitting at a computer trying to steal information, or is that part of this, this bigger artificial intelligence programming that tried to in, influence our, our decision-making? Yeah, I mean, it's part of the bigger picture. You know, I mean, Russia is a leader in uh, AI. So Vladimir Putin, I think it was three years ago, on the beginning of the education week in, in Russia, announced that whichever country leads in AI is going to dominate the world. And so the Russian perspective is we really need to do that. And a few months later, the Chinese government announced, I think mm -hmm. this is 2018, they announced by 2030, we're going to be a, a leader, the global leader in artificial intelligence. The United States just released a report that was four or five years in the making, started under the Trump administration, but was just published. And basically, it's making the same kind of claim. You know, America's place in the world geopolitically depends on us being able to maintain an edge in terms of artificial intelligence. And it's really full spectrum. It goes from military applications to kind of surveillance yeah. and the kind of influencing uh, populations and other governments. And they're all trying to do it. So it's not like yeah. it's only the Russians. You know. Is there a way to opt out of this? Like if, if someone were to know about this and get a little scared or, or, or worry about protecting themselves, is it something like we don't use the internet at all or we don't use computers or phones at all? Or is artificial intelligence just too ingrained in our daily life already? I think on the one hand, I'd say it's too ingrained already. Yeah. So that if you remove yourself from digital connectivity, not only do you lose all the benefits that come with yeah. digital connectivity, I mean, it's, it's hugely beneficial to us as as individuals and as communities. I mean, it's great. The transformational possibilities are really quite wonderful, but there's all the downsides. So there's all the promise and then you have all the perils. Yeah. And I think some people would say, well, can't you just opt out and do digital fast where you kind of go off social media for a while? And I think for individuals, that's good. That has no impact on government behavior, on corporate behavior and so on. Right. I think the only response to that really is collective action. That we need people to group together in order to be able to respond. So it, it helps to understand that these algorithms that are at the core of what most people call artificial intelligence now, the algorithms depend on good data sets in order to be able to perform and improve their performance. And so if we're withdrawing our data, if we hold back data, 
the algorithms aren't as good at, get, at doing what they do and they won't get better at it. Right. So whether it's states or corporations, they need our data. What that means is we're serving dual purpose. So we're consumers of products that are produced for us as consumers and as citizens by algorithmic intelligences. They're sort of ambient, they're all around us. And at the same time, we're producers of the fuel, the basic fuel, the data that they need to get better at what they're doing. So it gives us a kind of a leverage. So I did a talk at uh, American University in DC uh, last month and one of the students asked me, so what can I do? And I said, well, you know, there's a couple of hundred million college and university students around the world. Yeah. And what if all the college and university students around the world got together and said for one week, we're not gonna use any social media and we're gonna take our favorite platforms, whether it's Alibaba, Tencent, you know, Google, Facebook, whatever it is, and say, we want you to devote 10% of your revenue to meeting the UN's Global Millennium Development Goals. And we're gonna keep playing with your data until you get on board with doing something that's good for the world and not just for yourselves as corporations. It's a huge amount of power, but it takes collective action. It does sound like it, it's going to take more than one person. Uh, it, I imagine from what you said, if, if one person were to withdraw, does it take you out of the equation? You could, you could potentially be affected by other things being influenced by AI as well. So I, I can see your point that even if one person were to withdraw, they're still going to get affected. So it sounds like it's better to be in the mix than it is to withdraw yourself from the mix. At least you're in a position to try influencing it. And yeah. I think with a lot of people, when they think about technology, they think about their cell phone or the computer or mm -hmm. you know, automobile, electric car or something. And in fact, those are just tools. So a tool is something localizable. You can use it or not use it. But a technology is a system of relational connections. It's more than just the tools. It's everything that goes from manufacturing those tools to marketing those tools to the cultures that surround using those tools. And the whole thing is the technology. So it's a medium in which we're participating. Yeah. And so even if I don't use cell phone, I'm still being influenced by how people communicate now. So yeah. if you go to China and you're trying to arrange a meeting with somebody and you don't do WeChat, they either think that you're totally out of, out of the loop or they think you're so arrogant, you think you can get away with it. Yeah. Either way, it's not a good thing. I mean, yeah. Yeah, I can pull see that. out of it, yeah, you can't do it. So then you know, the question is, how do we influence the technologies, these relational right. components? Can you give a quick summary for our listeners what you explore in your book? Look, we've got this phenomenon going on that's called the intelligence revolution. I refer yeah. to it. It's revolution in artificial intelligence, but it's really not artificial intelligence. It's synthetic intelligence because it's combining our human intelligence and data with these algorithmic artificial systems. Oh, yeah. And the combination of the two is what we're ending up with. And I think it's creating the conditions of, potentially at least, what I refer to as an ethical singularity. So in a lot of the press and the movies and stuff, you know, you get your Terminator or yeah. the Matrix stuff, and it's all about some super intelligence that takes over humanity and starts acting in its own self-interest. Maybe that'll happen, you know, 25 years from now, 250 years from now. But I think in the next couple of decades, we're going to face an ethical singularity. Now, singularity is a point when uh, a particular value assumes infinite value. It's like a black hole in space. You know, nothing can escape. Mm -hmm. And ethics is the art of human course correction. And what we're giving over to a lot of these artificial intelligence systems, these smart services, are things like memory, things like teaching and learning, things like communication style. I mean, when you have the automatic correct on your computer and it's already yeah. filling out pre-filling responses for you. Creative activity, there's now AIs that are producing art, that are producing literature, film, and so on. If that process continues, we run the risk of giving up the possibility of future human course correction. And so what I'm asking in the book is, okay, if we need to resolve this predicament of intelligent technology having tremendous promise to do good for the world in the world, and also these perils, it's misused by corporations or by governments right. for intentionally malicious purposes, or just the sort of the overall effects on how society operates. And if we try to kind of ask, who do we need to be present as in order to resolve those predicaments? And I look backward for answers. So I look back to Confucian and Socratic thought, why? 
because the Socratic thought sort of informs everything with Western history, philosophy, etc. That covers kind of Europe and the US. Then you've got Confucianism, East Asia, China, Japan, Korea, et cetera, the big uh, stalwarts of AI development in Asia. And so it's saying, can we look to those resources along with Buddhism, kind of third of these great traditions that started 500 years before the common era, and say, maybe they have resources about what it's like to be a human, mm -hmm. to be critical of your cultural environment, to be able to communicate more clearly with people, and to resolve predicaments, which are conflicts among values. Because that's what we need to do. We've got conflicting values. So every human technology world relationship has certain possibilities built into it, but they conceal other possibilities. So the point of going and looking back into the past is say maybe there are some hints about who we could be present as that we've yeah. now lost sight of because of modernity and everything that's been happening over the last four or 500 years. And so I look back for some insight ethically, and the idea is not to have one system that kind of takes over the world ethically, but to look at developing an ethical ecosystem where different ethical traditions, different cultural traditions are all part of a larger ecological arrangement where people contribute their differences in a way that contributes to shared flourishing. So that's the idea behind the book, analyze the problem, see how it's working, look for some ethical resources, and then make some recommendations about, practically speaking, what can we do now? Okay. According to the press release, your book is also the jumping off point for the East-West Center virtual talk story that's titled Humane Artificial Intelligence and Our Collective Future. Can you give us a preview of some of the ideas you'll be part of covering during the discussion? You know, we're going to do it as an open conversation. So I'll start off with doing a five or 10 minute sort of introduction to what I've done in the book, but where it's going to be me and two visiting fellows that we've got associated mm -hmm. with the Humane AI Initiative at the East-West Center. Both of them are pretty recent postdocs, so they just finished their doctoral degrees. Both of them have an interest in artificial intelligence, entrepreneurship, engineering, and uh, indigenous knowledge. So it's kind of interesting that a lot of artificial intelligence is developed by people that look like us, uh -huh. uh, for people that kind of look like us, mm -hmm. and they're not developed by indigenous communities for indigenous purposes. They're not developed by minorities within societies for the minority purposes. So I think part of the discussion yeah. will be having them prompt me was sort of, so what are some of your ideas about how we can make artificial intelligence more equitable? And me sort of feeding back with them and hopefully have a nice dialogue and opened up for the a discussion with whoever's there in the audience. One last question of all the movies out there that depict AI, is there any one that is more close to real than the others? Yeah, I don't know quite how, respond to that one. The first movie that sort of came to mind was this movie Her, yeah, H-E-R. And the reason why I think that one comes close is because it's not based on a robot. We don't have anything like the robotics that you see in a movie like Ex Machina. Right, uh, certainly right. nothing like the tech that you've got in a, in a Matrix or a Terminator film. But Her is, it's like an app on the guy's smartphone. And the, the seduction is conversational. Mm -hmm. That it's, she gets to predict better and better kind of what he wants to hear how to feed it back to them. And they developed this relationship that from his side is really emotional. And I think that that's sort of where we're heading with this, that as these technologies get better and better at voice recognition and at reading human emotions and simulating human emotions, we're gonna have these sort of simulated friends. Mm -hmm. That might be an interesting thing to kind of contemplate, but if you imagine socializing children with digital friends, and the role that they would play, then I think that gets us thinking about, wow, do we really want to turn over the socialization process to digital oh, avenues? Yeah. It's also similar to, I don't know if you've seen it, but Blade Runner 2049, yeah. the, uh, the Ryan Gosling character has this hologram with a personality that I couldn't figure out if it was real or not right. until, until later in the movie. So yeah, that's, that's an interesting and, thought. Yeah. And a crude version of that technology in the, that Blade Runner film, it already yeah. exists in Japan. Oh, really? Yeah, indeed. Oh, wow. Commercially, and there's a bunch of the otaku, you know, like the uh, video game nerds. Uh -huh. that basically, that's their social life. And so it's, it's relatively new, but Japan's really at the front of the curve on developing these sort of interactive virtual friends or companions and so on, as well uh -huh. as the robotic side of things. Yeah, it's pretty wild. 
That was East West Center's Dr. Peter Hershock talking with our Russell Subiono. Hershock will be one of the panelists for the center's webinar entitled Humane Artificial Intelligence and Our Collective Future. It takes place tomorrow afternoon at 4 p.m. To register to attend the free event, click on the link on the conversation page of our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. We now go to this week's Manu Minute. University of Hawaii at Hilo professor Patrick Hart revisits the alala, or the Hawaiian crow. The alala is a velvety black native Hawaiian crow that's actually more closely related to ravens. They were once common on Hawaii Island, but their numbers declined drastically in the 20th century due to habitat loss, hunting, and disease to the point where there were none left in the wild. Today, they're one of the world's rarest birds. A total of 132 alala remain at two breeding facilities in Hawaii, managed by the San Diego Zoo. Alala played important roles as seed dispersers of many native forest trees. In 2017 and 2018, a number of birds were released into the wild on the slopes of Mauna Loa on Hawaii Island in hopes of reestablishing a wild breeding population. Things seemed hopeful for the first two years, but the native Hawaiian hawk, or eo, began to successfully prey on too many of them. So by late 2020, the last five wild birds were brought back into captivity. Like humans, alala learn their songs from each other, and recent research has shown that their vocalizations have changed in the years since they've been in captivity. Some territorial calls that were once common in wild birds are no longer heard in captive ones, like this. and also this one. Interestingly, the newly released wild birds seem to be learning a new vocabulary, and for a brief couple years, the soundscape of a Hawaiian forest once again included the calls of the alala. For Hawaii Public Radio, I'm Patrick Hart, from the biology department at UH Hilo. Support for Manu Minute comes from the Friends of Hakalau Forest National Wildlife Refuge, a nonprofit devoted to supporting the Hakalau Refuge and conserving the unique flora and fauna of Hawaii Island. More on helping at friendsofhakalauforest.org. That newborn male pup at Kaimana Beach is a big attraction these days. He is just a week and a half old today. We talked to Angela Amlin, the Hawaiian monk seal recovery coordinator for NOAA Fisheries, about what the public needs to know about keeping their distance to keep the endangered seals and themselves safe. We do not have a name yet. We have a great partner called Hawaii Marine Animal Response. They're a nonprofit group, and they have a really wonderful program on Oahu where they work with Native Hawaiian immersion schools to have the school children gift the monk seals their names. And they'll do this using information about where the seal was born and even some of the personality aspects of the seal. And so they'll do that after the seal is a little bit older and there's a little bit more information that they can use to develop it. So I've noticed just in this past week and a half that there have been a number of changes. You have actually expanded the perimeter, and I believe that's to protect the volunteers that have been out there because, you know, the crowds uh, are flocking to this area to, to get a glimpse of the mother and baby. There are a lot of people on the beach. People are definitely interested in seeing mom and pup, which is great. We do want people to see them and learn about them. 
but we also want to make sure that staff and volunteers and other folks who are out there doing outreach can be safe. And so, yes, adding a barrier allows the volunteers or other folks who might be out there sharing that information to just create a little bit of space between themselves and the crowd um, and, and make themselves feel um, safe and protected. As soon as mom and pup are getting into the water, we really want to make sure that people are moving out of the way. Monk seals may appear really slow on land, um, although they can move faster than you would think, uh, but they can definitely move quickly in water. Moms will absolutely protect their pups from what they perceive as a threat. And so, you know, be extra cautious when the, the seals are starting to move around and starting to get in the water and exit the water and give them their space. One of the best things that we can do is work together with other agencies and nonprofit partners out there to make sure that we're providing the public with as much information as possible. We found that people were really curious and were hoping for a lot of frequent updates, and so we tried to be as responsive as possible and share information, both facts about monk seal biology as well as safety information. And we want to equip the public with that information to make sure that they can make responsible decisions that are going to keep themselves and their families safe as well as protect mom and pup. I have seen still, though, people bringing their pets down to the beach, you know, the dogs that are on leashes and some not. What are your thoughts on that, particularly since, you know, the monk seal is pretty vulnerable right now? It's really important for folks to keep their dogs leashed when they're on the beaches. Not only can dogs injure severely injure monk seals, but they can also be injured in return. Mom, again, is going to be real protective of her pup. And so you want to protect your dog as well as make sure that your dog is not endangering the monk seal. And in terms of threats, it's not just physical injuries, but diseases as well can be transferred back and forth between monk seals and dogs. So really make sure that your pets are kept on a leash and kept back for their safety and the safety of the monk seals. Now, we had a situation with Kaimana where that pup got inside the natatorium, the pool there. Any discussion about whether you're going to try and close off those openings so that that doesn't happen again with this pup? Conversations with our agency partners are ongoing uh, to make sure that we are doing everything that we can to make sure that the pup is safe and that we have all contacts available, access points, and we'll discuss what measures will be possible to put in place in order to make sure that that situation doesn't happen again, or if it does, that we're able to respond quickly and effectively, like we were with Kaimana. So have you ruled that out yet or not? It's not a NOAA purview to put those measures in place, and so we have to talk with our partners about what is reasonable and feasible. Any measures that would be put in place, we would absolutely be taking into account any impacts that they would have on the field. That's going to be human safety and field safety are, you know, the number one and number two priorities. <laughs> Can you give us a timetable again, refresh our memories as to, you know, when we might expect the mom and the pup to become more active? So the pup will typically nurse for about five to seven weeks. Kaivi in particular, RK96, this mom, tends to nurse her pups for about 42 days, and they'll get act more and more active, and it really depends. Each pup is kind of on their own timetable. Some will start entering the water and swimming around more quickly. Some take a little bit longer to get there. So it's hard to say exactly when that will happen, but it's definitely going to be coming soon. So definitely the public should be aware that they're going to start seeing more activity. The seals will start moving around more and to just be really conscious of the surroundings and being able to give the monk seals their space. Do you have volunteers down there like 24 hours a day, or you know, what's the snapshot there? HMAR, Hawaii Marine Animal Response, has volunteers that are there from sunrise to sunset. We have other partners who do checks um, during the nighttime hours. So there's a lot of folks that are involved in keeping eyes on mom and pop and making sure that everything is going well, which so far seems to be. And do we know why... All of a sudden now, Kaimana is kind of the place to go to have a baby seal? You know, we don't. Rocky and Kaimana in 2017 was the first documented in, in pupping in Waikiki that we were aware of. And so it's interesting that it's happened again a few years later and that it's a different mom this time. And so, no, we're not sure. Um, this is not Kaivi's normal pupping area either. She typically pups on the Kaivi shoreline, hence her name, where she was born as well. So we, we really actually don't know what makes this spot attractive or if it's just camp. <laughs> we'll have to see. Right, because I mean, you folks track births uh, on other islands, and you know most of those are remote, but this happens to be just in a very popular recreational area. 
It is. You know, monk seals definitely do give birth on beaches that people use. Obviously, in the main islands, it, it can be hard to find a lot of beaches that people don't use, especially on Oahu. But they do typically gravitate towards areas that are not quite so heavily used as Waikiki. So this is definitely not that common. And we'll have to see if this starts to become increasingly common. It definitely poses management challenges, but it's also a great opportunity for the public to learn more about monk seals and see them. So, you know, there's pros and cons. <laughs> and, you know, you folks don't just keep an eye out, you know, for monk seals, but you also monitor other um, threatened and endangered species. We do. We work with cetaceans. Uh, that includes dolphins and whales, sea turtles. There are protected sharks and rays in the area. So, yeah, NOAA has a protected resources division. We also have our science center that does research on a lot of these species. So it's not just monk seals. There's a lot of different species that are that get our attention. And is there anything underway right now that uh, people can give input on? Any rule changes out on the horizon? Not related to monk seals, but we did just release a new species in the spotlight plan. For folks who are not aware, the species in the spotlight initiative is something that NOAA launched in 2016. It focuses on nine species that are particularly at risk of extinction in the near future, but that we know a lot about, that we understand the threats really well, and that we believe with a really targeted effort and with really strong partnerships, we can make a big difference. So we just had a new plan for the Hawaiian monk seal come out that we'll be covering the next five years and we'll be, you know, targeting threats like improving survival of juvenile and adult female seals in the northwestern Hawaiian Islands, mitigating human seal interactions and minimizing conflict, fostering community support, addressing diseases. These are some of the important actions that are included in that plan. It's available online for people to download and view, and it spells out a lot of area for, for partnerships. This is not, if you're looking for as far as a public comment period, this plan has already been published. That was Angela Amelin, Hawaiian Monk Seal Recovery Coordinator for NOAA Fisheries, talking about the mom, Ka'ivi, and her male monk seal pup, who is yet unnamed. They have taken up residence at Kaimana Beach, which is also known as San Susi Beach. They do look like they don't have a care in the world, just resting there on the shore. And we're done for today, but up tomorrow, we continue our tourism thread. We plan to hear from Tourism Committee Chair of the House, Representative Richard Onishi. Uh, we'll be talking about the cuts to HTA. What do you think about tourism rebounding back? Leave your feedback on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Want to listen back to something you've heard? Find our archive shows online. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. <laughs>